Welcome to the pulpit ministry of Christ Community Church in South Florida, aiming to make, mature, and multiply disciples by preaching and teaching God's Word based on the sufficiency of Scripture. And now, let's join Pastor Bernie Diaz for the message. It's not storming in South Florida. Go figure. Yeah, there's still time. Ron is right about that. I'll start a little story. Long ago, there ruled in Persia this wise and good king. And he loved his people. So he wanted to know how they really lived. And so he wanted to know about their hardships. So often what he would do is he would dress in clothes of a working man or a beggar. And then he went to the homes of the poor. And no one whom he visited knew he was their ruler. He must have had a pretty good disguise. No one recognized him. One time he visited this very poor guy, lived in a cellar, and he went there and ate with him this really rancid, spoiled food. It was like pig slop. But he still spoke cheerful, kind words to the man that he left. Later he visited the poor man again, and he disclosed his identity by saying to them, I am your king. And the king thought the man then would surely start asking him for favors, you know, a gift. This is the king. And instead, he said, you left your palace and your glory to visit me in this dark, dreary place. You ate this terrible food I had, and you brought gladness to my heart. To others, you've given your rich gifts. To me, you have given yourself. And I kind of like that story. Because in a nutshell, it kind of gives you a little bit of a picture of what Jesus Christ did when he stepped into history as a king and became a man. You know, there's lots of people around the world, people you know, that like Jesus. They think of him as a nice guy. There was a movement a few years ago, I don't know how many years ago, you'd call him your homie, all that kind of stuff. People thought he was a good man, a philosopher, maybe a legendary figure. But they didn't really know or believe in his true identity. What really trips them up is that you have this very moral man who actually is God in the flesh. How can God be a man and then as a man live this incredible life the way he lived it? Right? So this, this text of scripture gets into all of that today as a means of teaching us a lesson, and it's a visual lesson. Because this is probably, I want you to know, Pastor George alluded to this as one of his favorite scriptures. It's theologically, doctrinally, as precise as any in all of the Bible on the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Meaning God becoming man. Incarnation literally means God incarnate, in flesh. And it's, it's a masterful portrait of what Christ came to do and what he's really about. And what's interesting is this massive, important truth that's found here, which you could say, really, if you think about it, is the mission of Christmas. Why we have Christmas? Yeah, we're talking Christmas in June. It's just a picture. This is just a picture of the main idea of the passage that goes back to the end of chapter 1, which is, we talked about, the need for us to have humility, to bring about unity in the church and in just relationships in general. 
That's the context. That's the background of this scripture. This perfect picture of humility you find in the person. And here's a big 10 cent word. The condescension of Christ. You ever hear that? Someone speaking in a condescending way to someone? Well, they're speaking in a way that makes them feel low. It's being humbled. Low. So we're talking about the humble way, the picture, the humble way in the how and the why God, the Son, became the Son of Man. In fact, in the Christmas story, Gospel of Luke, it says there, Mary gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, laid him in a manger because there was no place for them at the inn. That's a pretty humble beginning to life, don't you think? Especially for a king. A baby born to a handyman in a little nondescript town of Bethlehem. It's amazing. In fact, I know a friend of mine just went to the Holy Land and he visited Bethlehem recently. He told me there's still like 3,000 citizens there. It's like, a, it's like a nothing town. But this text reveals why Jesus entered into our world. And it's part of a section that runs through verse 11. And it's thought, it's such a big truth here. This was thought to be a hymn that was sung, these words, in the early church. Because it was so rich in its truth. That it, it should produce an overflow of worship and praise to Jesus. Which we were doing this morning. And that should humble us in more than one way. So not only do we see the greatest example the greatest model of humility that ever existed. For us to follow, by the way, as a bonus, we get to learn Jesus is not only perfect humility in the flesh, but he's humble as God in the flesh. So we're going to see two things in this text. I'll just break it in half for you. You're going to see the exaltation and then the humiliation of Christ. Let's look at the exaltation first. Verses 5 and 6. We'll read it again. Paul writes, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, this is one sentence in English that goes through verse 7. But we're just taking the first two verses here to look at the exaltation of Christ. And it begins with the idea that all of us should have, when it says the mind of Christ, the similar attitude, the similar mindset of Jesus. We talked about that last week. In which we can, and do to an extent, actually have the mind of Christ. Because you're in Christ, which can be translated as you are with Christ, if you're a Christian. And on top of that, you have the Holy Spirit of Christ, who indwells you. All right. So, we're here to think like Jesus about humility... Which is amazing because it's pictured alongside his deity or his divinity. And I say that. I make a big deal about this because you ordinarily wouldn't think of God or any earthly king or a leader as being humble, right? Most people would not think that way. That wouldn't be the first impression or characteristic you would attribute to an earthly king, a sovereign who on earth is thought to be full of power, would be prideful, I mean, to the point of being arrogant. Think about world leaders today. But Paul, Paul's saying this, get this, Christian. God in the flesh was humble when he was here. You say, really? 
And then on top of that, Jesus is God. Really? You bet. That's the argument. The Bible clearly teaches the deity of Jesus Christ. It is a definitional, distinctive doctrine of the Christian faith. This is what we call one of our brick wall doctrines. This is the proverbial hill to die on. In fact, Christians over the last two millennium have died on the hill defending this doctrine. Okay? This separates us from the cults. The Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons will say wonderful things about Jesus. Jesus God? No, I don't think so. They don't go there. Again, if you want to know what an antichrist is, a false teacher is, it's basically how they deal with the person and the divinity of Jesus Christ. What does it mean in the text so we understand this properly? That Jesus was in the form of God. That's a critical world-altering question from this verse. You can't make a mistake on it. Paul makes a connection here. That being in the form of God means to be equal with God. How so? That word form, I'm going to give you a couple of Greek words today because they're, they're familiar somewhat to the ear. They're important to know. Form comes from morphe. You ever heard that phrase, you can morph into something? It's that idea. It can be translated as just appearance, as verse 7 takes it. But it also refers to the inner person being reflected by the outer person. It's like an outward display of someone's inner nature, the part that doesn't change. So in talking about his humanity, just humanity alone in verse 8, the English word again there is form. But to clarify the difference, in that case, in verse 8, Paul uses the word schema, where we get the word scheme from. We scheme something, and that just refers to the external form or the appearance of something, the shape that it's in. It's something that can change from time to time. One's nature cannot change. Okay? In fact, I'm going to give you a very relevant analogy today in our current culture, the issue of transgenderism, for instance. We talked about this last summer. Today we have a number of men and women biologically who by nature, their true form, are male or female. Now they may be dealing with gender dysphoria, which means they're mixed up and they're in angst and anxiety over their identity, and they may want to change it. But they really can't. You can't change your nature. Their gender is fixed. Gender is binary. You are either a man or a woman by nature. There's no third option. There's no going back and forth biologically. It's the way it is. A man, for instance, can have a sex change or reassignment surgery. That is changing his schema. Not his morphe. That's just changing his outer appearance. Somewhat to that of a woman. He can even cross-dress. That's another thing today. I never in my wildest imagination thought that could be a thing in my lifetime. Which, by the way, God's law condemns clearly in the book of Deuteronomy. But that man cannot change his chromosomes. He cannot change his biology. He cannot change his DNA. That is his inherent, unchanging nature, who he really is. 
So no matter how one tries and butchers themselves, we have an inner nature that cannot be changed on the outside. Why do I bring this up? Similarly, the nature, the essence of Jesus is that of God Almighty. Can't change. That's his morphe. Yet he could change his schema, the human flesh on the outside. This is where we take this deep dive doctrinally into the divine and the human nature of Jesus and God. The Bible teaches they coexist. Jesus Christ, as unbelievable as it may seem to hear, is 100% God and 100% human and man at the same time. And you say, how is that possible? I don't really know. Comprehensively. Because the Bible doesn't tell us comprehensively how that works. No one can tell you that. I don't think we could handle it. I don't think we can understand it. We can't explain that mystery yet on this side of glory. But we'll see from Scripture, that's what it is. That's what it teaches. Jesus was pre-existent is pre-existent as God and man. In other words, he always has been. He always will be. John 1.1, the prologue to that gospel, says it really well. And you know this passage. In the beginning was the Word. Word Word is logos, where we get the word logo from. And it's another word for the representation of something. But here, logos has the idea of wisdom, the mind of God. So it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Same thing. And if that wasn't clear enough, we're going to read again the pastor of Scripture that Pastor George read this morning. Give you a little bit of it so you could see how it harmonizes. Starting in the beginning of verse 15 of Colossians 1. He, talking about Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things. He's not a created being like the cults teach. He's a fallen angel. He's the brother of uh, Satan, believe it or not. He's like Michael the Archangel. He's none of those things. He is the pre-existent God-man in the flesh. Jesus was and is the very nature of God. 2 Corinthians 4 also says He is the image of God. So the idea is that Jesus is the unchanging essence of God. He possesses the fullness of all His divine attributes. In fact, God the Father... In speaking of the Son, put it this way in the beginning of Hebrews, in the middle of verse 2 of chapter 1. He's talking about whom He appointed the heir of all things. Talking about Jesus, through whom also He, Jesus, created the world. He, same Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God. And listen to this. And the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe right now by the word of of his power. That's incomprehensible. The reason the lights on are in this building, the reason you're breathing, the reason the reason that the world is still in orbit, moving as it is, is because the word of the power of Jesus. He's keeping it going. Every millisecond, 
That's happening. So this is God talk. Talking about Jesus. And that the Son is His exact representation imprint. It's where we get the word character from. Character of God. Different person, but same nature. So His mission then, as the Messiah, Lord, Savior of this world, was to step into history as a man in the position, get this, of the second Adam. Romans 5 talks about that. Chapter 5 in that book. That Jesus came to be the perfect human being, therefore the perfect sacrifice for sin, the perfect example of humanity and humility, and to give His people the position of having perfect righteousness before God so they can be at peace with God. John 1 says it well again, verse 14. And the Word was made flesh, came in the flesh, and dwelt or lived among us. It's amazing. So this truth is one of the most well-attested to fundamental doctrines in the Bible, regardless of what you hear. That's why I'm always surprised. I get freaked out when people come and say, Jesus and the Bible doesn't really speak of his divinity. What? It is so clear. And it's in so many places. I've given you a number of texts already. Jesus himself said in John 10, I and the Father are one. He wasn't talking about sharing his favorite hobbies with the Father there. In fact, statements like that and his forgiving sins of people led the Jews to want to arrest him and kill him before the passion happened. They got it. They know what he was saying. They knew who he was claiming to be by calling himself even the Son of Man, which is how Daniel refers to the Messiah and Son of God in Daniel's book. Because he was making himself out to be God, it says in the Scripture. They considered that a blasphemy, which, by the way, it would be, except that it's true. Let me show you the same Gospel. John, again, John's Gospel, chapter 14. Jesus has just told the, God, the apostles, He is the way, He's the truth, and the life. Okay? They're blown away by that. And then we get this reaction, verse 7. And Jesus says, If you had known Me, you would have known My Father also. From now on, you do know Him and have seen Him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. What? What's Philip missing? He doesn't get verse 7. And he says, oh, yeah, yeah, the Father's here. Can we see him? And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? That's pretty clear, don't you think? He claimed he was divine in many, many ways. Among the most explicit of all, I think, was when he actually claimed and took the proper name of God to the Hebrews. The same name when Moses asked Jehovah, what will I call you when I go down and take the lot of the people? What's your name? And God said, I am. I am who I am. And so Jesus in John 8, 58, credible statement. 
He's going at it with the scribes and the Pharisees and the Jews. And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Oh, brother. So they picked up stones to throw at him. Of course. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. I mean, this is a self-evident truth. Jesus is saying, the same name as God the Father is my name. Paul knew this truth. He wasn't bashful about preaching it and teaching it. He added in Colossians 2, For in him, Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. I think that's pretty clear too. Fullness of deity means the full extent. All that God is, is in Christ. You know, it's a, it's a beautiful thing, like Philip, when skeptics might say to you, you know, I wish, I wish I could, I would believe in God if I could just see him in the flesh. I, that way he could relate to me, you know. Uh, then I could see what he looks like, and I could hear his voice, and I could see how he lived as if he were on earth. And then all you have to do is, have you ever read the Gospels? Have you ever read the New Testament? Any part of it at all. You ever heard of this person? This guy? Jesus Christ? Because he's there. God. In the flesh. It's all over the place. You can't avoid it. Titus 2, when Paul's referring to Christ and his second coming, he looks forward to it and says, And the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Hello. So this is, this is presumed biblical truth, the divinity of Jesus. If Jesus isn't God in the flesh, you have no Christianity whatsoever. Okay? So we die on that hill. That's a brick wall doctrine. And by the way, if you believe this, as you should, in the divinity of Christ, then you should have no trouble with the Trinity because it's just one more person to the Father and the Son in the same essence, same being, just three different persons rather than two. So now that brings us after the exaltation of Christ you've just heard, now to this incredible contrast, the humiliation, which is in verses 7 and 8 of Philippians 2. We're back there. And it says there in verse 7 that he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, really should be translated as slave, doulos, being born in the likeness of men. Now, the NIV translation kind of makes a, a connection here to the humility part by saying that Jesus, in becoming man, he made himself nothing. That's not bad. I don't prefer that translation. I think the New King James gets it closer by saying he became of no reputation. Because that's pretty humbling. That's making yourself low. And that's the overall context of this picture. So what does humility look like? Again, so we can defeat pride ourselves and be one. We can be unified. Go further back. Last time, verses 3 and 4, where Paul wrote, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Consider others more significant than yourselves. Verse 4, let each of you look only not to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Look also to others. Consider others, their needs, 
So that's what comes before the humility picture. So the example of that, the perfect illustration of that, what you just heard, is Jesus. We're going to see that. And, and we're going to see that because the most accurate translation of verse 7 is in the English Standard Version, I think, in the New American, which has this idea in English of Jesus emptying himself, kenosis. And that simply means this. He gave up his, simply gave up his divine privileges. He relinquished his rights as God, not his personhood as son of God. He didn't stop being God when he became human. He just took, he, he, he deprived himself, stripped himself of some of his privileges as the son of God by taking what? The humble position of a slave rather than the privileged position of God the king he did that when he was born and he first lived here as a human being. The scripture doesn't say he emptied himself of his divine nature. Don't get that confused. He didn't stop being God. He just laid aside some of his privileges and rights of being God to fulfill his mission. Like 2 Corinthians 8 says he became poor. Not so much referring to riches on earth, but in terms of his position. It was more lowly. This is why he talked about his father being greater. That, that trips up the cults. Oh, Jesus couldn't be God in the flesh because he's referring to God as his father. I always do the will of my father. It just means his role was a submissive one in his mission to the father. He is creator. You heard that in Colossians and Hebrews. He is creator. He's the coming again king of the world. He is Israel's Messiah. But in his first advent or coming, he divested himself of, or he voluntarily gave up his privileges as king, which we're going to talk about a bit more. He only did that temporarily because in our July 4th message next time, we're going to see his kingship, his kingdom, how that relates to our country and what we're going through, some of the things we're going through today. But this truth is also why Jesus, in his high priestly prayer, in the garden on the night of his arrest, John 17, he was thinking about what was going to happen to him. And he prayed, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. You get that? Jesus acknowledged he's preexistent. He wasn't created. He enjoyed the privilege and the position of being son of God eternally before time began in all glory and majesty. And then he's looking forward to that position again where he would be exalted in his ascension after the resurrection. Lord Jesus didn't have to grasp, it says in the scripture, or claim the idea that he's God. Okay, He didn't need to hold on to that. Because again, he never lost his identity when he came to earth as a Christmas baby 2,000 years ago. Didn't give up his personhood as God. Just his position as God in some ways when he was a man. But he was, always, remains God incarnate. That is his essence. That's who he is. So then the question that should lead from that is why? Why did he do that? Why did the incarnation have to happen? Well, because we're human beings. Sinful human beings. And a perfect human being has to come and make us right with God. So it was God, the perfect human being. Paul puts it two different ways in Romans. 
The book of Romans, as it explains so many things theologically, does here, Romans 5.19, Paul writes, For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, one disobedient man, who's that referring to? Adam. So by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. That's referring to Jesus. Chapter 8, verse 3. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, meaning perfectly obey it, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. That's why we have the incarnation of the Christ. A human being had to be without sin to become the sin bearer for human beings to be right with God, to be forgiven, to be reconciled in right relationship to Him. So Jesus became a servant. He became a slave. And He took on that word. See, another word that means the form or the shape of something. He took on the likeness of a man so He could be that peace offering to pay that penalty for repentant sinners on the cross. He was the perfectly holy, sacrificial lamb for sin. And sin, as we said last time, is always rooted in pride. He was the lamb without blemish and spot. He even said of himself, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give His life as a ransom. That's payment price. As a ransom for many. Many meaning the elect, the church. So Christ had to become like a man as we are at the same time being God. He was like us, but also different from us. I've heard this question asked. Well, well, what kind of man? Was Jesus like Superman? There's some that, you know, the modalists, some theologians think it's like he just changed roles here and there. You know, the fictional Superman did have an alter ego, right? He had a mortal appearance, a likeness. Clark Kent, right? Then when it was time to save people, he'd rip his shirt and he'd change into Superman and he exercised all these superpowers, except, of course, when he runs into kryptonite, which can kill him. So he's not that strong. But Jesus was human in every way we are other than the fact there's only one thing he couldn't do. Jesus couldn't do one thing. What is that? Sin. Unable to sin. Because of his divine nature. Even in human flesh. You see. That's a big difference between him and Superman. I hate to burst your bubble. If you're into DC Comics as I was growing up. And I watch all the movies and everything. Superman's a sinner. Hello. Alright. He blew it here and there. Now I'll tell you what the Bible says about Jesus. He felt sadness. He got angry in the perfect way. He got hungry, thirsty. He tired. Remember he slept in the boat on the Sea of Galilee before calming the storm? He was tired. And he needed help from Simon the Cyrene to carry his cross up Calvary's hill. He had been beaten and he had lost strength and energy. He laid down his prerogative too. You know this to know the exact day and time of his second coming when he was first here. He said, 
Not even the Son of Man knows the day or the time. Right? He was spit on. He was cursed. He was beaten. He was tested and tempted by Satan more than one time. That's why he's the perfect mediator and savior for us. Because he could relate to what you and I go through. He was like us, but didn't sin like us. He is the perfect God and man. And in perfect humiliation, look at verse 8 and we're done of our text. Philippians 2.8 And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He knew from eternity, folks, that the cross was a central part of his work, of his mission. He said in John 6, 38, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. It's a mission. The cross, again, it must be said as a reminder, was never plan B. The arrest, the crucifixion of the Christ, was not a surprise to God. Didn't catch him off guard. It was part of the eternal plan of the Godhead. Christ knew it. He gladly accepted it. And his redemptive role in his divine nature. He said in John 10.18, that chapter about being the good shepherd. He said, The Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. But I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge, this order, I have received from my Father. The book of Deuteronomy, and it's echoed in Galatians, said, He who is cursed hangs on a tree. That's a synonym for the cross. Okay? The cross is the tree in that context. That was the most shameful horrific death anyone could die and it had to be that way because sin is an abomination to God he hates it so much because of how it disfigures his creation and his favorite creatures his image bearers he had to punish it and curse it in the worst most public way possible at that time somebody once said anybody who died on a cross died a thousand deaths. In this case, I think he died the deaths of, it's been millions of deaths over the centuries. The perfect Son of Man suffered and died to make sinners sons of God. And he did it in shame so you and I wouldn't have to suffer that shame. If you're in Christ, folks, you're a true child of God. God is your Abba Father. He adopted you and he did it because his son, God in the flesh, died in your place. Jesus humbled himself. That's why. Because he brought himself low in human ego by obeying our Father in heaven. That's the last idea here I want to get across to you. He submitted to him and his will. This is a hallmark of humility. You ever want to know if you're humble? Are you humble? Ask yourself, do you obey? Humility and obedience go side by side. And obedience is not only a sign of humility, it's a sign of love. In John 8, Jesus also said of his Father, I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Those of you with children in the room, as many of you have, 
And I've always used this phrase with my kids, especially when I'm having a tough time with them. They were young, trying to get them to do what they should do. I would say, you know, I like when you tell me you love me, but show me you love me. Do what I say. Because that's what Jesus is talking about. Obedience, humility is measured in obedience. So it's really amazing. Jesus demonstrated his love and obedience by being a foot washer. Not only a foot washer, but a cross bearer. So the big, the big application for us here to take away today for us is how are we demonstrating our humility and our love for Christ with our obedience? Do we habitually love Christ so much we habitually obey His Word? Habitually, not perfectly. Habitually. John 13, again, that night of the Passion Weekend, just as it's beginning that Thursday night, you're going to remember what Jesus said and what He did in the upper room, right? Listen to it again, John 13, verse 12. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you a what? An example. Philippians 2, again, another example. That you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Are you and I foot washers? In our context, right? Are we slaves to Christ in righteousness and slaves to others? Do we do the one another's in this church? And with your other loved ones amongst your family and friends. You know, Jesus wrapped up his message that night about this. This way, going toward the end of John 13. Verse 34 in the middle of it. He said this commandment that you love one another... Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Now get this. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Now thankfully, as John Burnett will tell you, he says one of the things that attracted him to this church is that it's a loving church. We're about truth and we're about love. And Jesus just said That's, that has to be the case for every church. If the people in this church don't love one another, Jesus just said, you're not mine. You're not one of my followers. If you don't love the people in this room, you don't belong to me. It's pretty heavy. It's pretty heavy, but true. By this, they will know you are my disciples. If you have love for one another. And that doesn't always... It's, it's the agape love. It's not always the phileo, brotherly love. It's not always warm and fuzzies. That should be there plenty. But it should always follow agape love, which is the law the love of service. Doing for one another. Our willingness to be selfless rather than selfish. Let's put it that way. 
This kind of love, this kind of humility and obedience is about giving rather than receiving. Sacrificially serve others. Even though Jesus is God in the flesh and we're not, we've been reborn, folks. We are empowered. We are equipped to obey this command. We can do this. In fact, we are expected to do this. Just like we're expected to be humble as he is. So as I close, what might that look like practically? I'll give you one quote from Donald Whitney. He has written a terrific book. A lot of our core groups use the spiritual disciplines of a godly Christian life. He said this, Can you serve your boss and others at work, helping them to succeed and be happy, even when they are promoted and you are overlooked? Can you work to make others look good without envy filling your heart? Can you minister to the needs of those who God exalts and men honor when you yourself are neglected? Can you pray for the ministry of others to prosper when it would cast yours in the shadow? End quote. I'll just leave it there. The lesson from the exaltation and the humiliation of Christ is that we are to prefer one another. We edify or build one another up. Bear each other's burdens. Encourage and even admonish one another, if done properly and in love, when necessary. The others is the key word of this chapter. All right, of Paul's letter to the Philippians, because it's the key word in the ministry of Christ. Remember, humility unifies, humility loves, humility submits. That's what we do for one another, as Jesus did for us. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your holy and precious word. It's our food. It is our meat. It is all that we need. We have been humbled as we praise you today, having understood better the humiliation following the exaltation of the Christ, the God-man who died for us, sacrificed for us, yet, yet, is a coming again King, Lord and Savior. What great news. What a great, perfect gospel, Lord God. We thank you, Lord, for that gospel. And I pray that that gospel, by the work of the Holy Spirit, will penetrate a heart today and that someone listening, Lord God, today would commit to turning away from their old sin and selfishness from a lifetime of sin and commit to following you to loving you, to obeying you, to receive the peace and everlasting and abundant joy only you can give now and forevermore. We pray that will be the case and we can pray with that person today and leading them into the kingdom where your hands are outstretched and waiting for them to be reconciled, to forgive them and to make peace with them. We pray these things and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Christ Community Church is a God-glorifying, Christ-exalting, and Bible-centered body of believers who love God and love people by making disciples of Jesus Christ. For more information on us and to learn how to give towards our media ministry, please go to our website at www.christcomchurch.org. That's christcomchurchcom.org. And look for the Giving tab at the top of the homepage. 